All right. Well, welcome to another one of our uh, weekly security seminars. And this week, I'm really pleased to introduce our speaker, Jack Daniel. Uh, there's a lot of things that can be said about Jack. Um, obviously, one of them is he definitely is one of the gray beards of security. Uh, you can see that yourselves. Uh, Jack has had an interesting uh, path to get to security, but one that has caused him to really appreciate when it works. Among other things, he's a, uh, an advocate and champion of security and the community at Tenable and is really responsible, I would say, for a lot of the growth of the B-Sides conference. He's well known as a mentor, a speaker, and a curmudgeon. And I'll leave it at that. And I'd like to uh, turn this over to Jack Daniel. So Jack, please, you and your hoverfish, take it away. All right. Well, thank you very much. I, I am uh, honored to be here. This is uh, great. And I have to uh, have to uh, either thank and or actually thank and or blame you, Spaf. Uh, you were instrumental in me making this uh, project happen. But let's let's uh, dig into it. So the important part, um, I started out as an auto mechanic and stumbled into management and they made me take care of computers. Um, I haven't been at this is a security focus as long as a lot of people think. And one of the things that we love about security is that it's a challenge. Many of us are drawn into security because of the challenges. Although oftentimes uh, we find ourselves thinking, I wanted a challenge. This is a little bit more than a simple challenge, but uh, there we are. So let's go in a completely different direction. If we think about popular music of the past 100, 120 years, it's pretty easy to find some threads and pull on them and see some history. Um, one of my favorites is surf guitar. Um, you can go back a century and find Middle Eastern, Mediterranean folk music, and then find in the 50s, 60s, up until a couple of years ago, Dick Dale mining that for um, some incredible surf music based on things like Hava Nagila and Miserlou. Um, the movie Pulp Fiction years, decades now ago, reignited the interest in that stuff. But that started with folk music and somebody saying, let's take folk music in a completely new direction. You know, we can uh, look at the migration of blues from the Mississippi Delta up from acoustic blues through Chicago blues uh, into electronic blues and rock and roll. Um, it's easy to follow that up. Uh, peer of uh, Dick Dale's was Link Ray. Somebody asked him to improvise a song once in the 50s as he and his band were changing from being country to this newfangled rock and roll. And in a single song, he gave us the world's first power chord. Um, he started doing some rudimentary shredding in that song. At the end of it, he twisted the vibrato knob up on everything and got some weird electronic effects uh, and paved a way between Dick Dale and Link Ray for heavy metal, for uh, rock and roll in general, but heavy metal in particular. You know, a few years later, the Sonics, who aren't that well known, there was this song called... Uh, Strychnine, where it's singing the joys of uh, drinking poison for fun. Um, that laid a path that went through um, punk, 
it went through grunge long before grunge. Uh, you know, the easy one to pick on is the Velvet Underground, right? It, it, who knows how many bands were formed by the uh, Velvet Underground. Um, initially, they weren't a commercial success, except with musicians who took it in different directions. And you go back, uh, you know, you come forward another decade or so from there. I remember uh, in the late 70s, a band or a group called the Sugar Hill Gang gave us the song Rapper's Delight, which just launched the the public acclaim and altered the path, just a, paved a path for rap, hip hop. And it goes on and on. Um, you know, it just it just keeps going. And we can go, all right, so the disclaimer here, Wikipedia is Wikipedia, but sometimes it's a good starting place for things. Uh, Google your, you know, you ask Wikipedia for your favorite band or genre. Um, they're, they're documentaries. The documentary about Muscle Shoals is amazing. Uh, there's one on electric guitar called It Might Get Loud. Uh, BBC Radio 4 did a documentary on the song Summertime from its original Porgy and Bess incarnations through the decades to being a Brazilian jazz standard to Janice's, you know, ultimate blues rock cover to being a civil rights anthem of sorts. Uh, recently, Smokey Robinson did a thing for Audible, Words and Music, that was was amazing to see where he had come from and the things that he was adjacent to. So what's your point, Jack? Do that with what we do. Tell us who these people are, what their stories are. So there's a question that does come up, obviously, you know, why? Why look back? Um, and as it says on the passenger side of your car, um, you know, those, those things in our past really aren't that far back there. They're a lot closer than uh, you might think. And uh, a lot of people reinvent things that have been done uh, many times before. So let's take a look at why we don't know them. Uh, things were different. Um, information security, information assurance, cryptography were part of what you did. Uh, they weren't uh, an industry unto themselves really um, for a long time. You just did it. It was part of the job. Um, an obvious one is we just can't keep up. Part of the drive to do this talk was me recognizing that how much, how little I knew and how important it was that uh, some of us make an effort to help tell these stories, um, especially while some of the first person accounts are available to us. Uh, but when you enter this field, you run to keep up. And the opportunity to stop and look back is rare. So I try to do this as a way to make it easy to look back and find some things and keep us uh, aware of where we came from. Uh, a lot of the foundational work uh, isn't on the internet. Um, if, 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 a, if a paper falls in a university and Google doesn't index it, did it get written? Well, the truth is it did, but it makes it hard for us to know what came before. Um, silos, uh, unfortunately, we haven't cured this one. Some of it is for um, valid reasons, but there are a lot of silos. A lot of things happened in 
the military, a lot of things happen in the civilian side of government, a lot of things that happen in academia aren't always well known in industry and vice versa. Um, a lot of folks are no longer active. Um, obviously, some of these people have uh, passed long before us. Many are, uh, have decided to retire, um, but we don't get to see these people. There we go. Uh, for those of us like me who do a lot of conference stuff, a lot of folks are not on the conference circuit, or at least not on the conferences that we're on. So it's easy to just not see them. And if you don't see them, you don't think about them. So we'll start out with some names that you know, and let's talk about um, them as, as actual people, though. Um, so everybody knows Alan Turing? Okay, no. All right, it was a pretty good movie, a few literary uh, license takes, but uh, Alan Turing. I'm not going to dwell here that he's well known. But Alan Turing opens the door to having conversations about people like Doc Keene. He was called Doc because he used a leather's doctor's bag for his engineering tools. Um, Turing didn't come up with an engineering blueprint for creating the Bomba. He had ideas, he was brilliant, he knew what needed to be done, but it took this engineer to translate that into something that could actually be built and then supervise the construction. And it took people nuts and bolts and solder to make that actually happen. So um, not to take away from touring, but it took a lot of people to make that stuff happen. And some of them are, are forgotten. The history of Bletchley Park is full of overlooked people. Um, Henrik Zagalski, Jersey Riziki, Marian Rajewski, this was a trio of Polish uh, mathematicians and cryptologists. And they came up with this perforated sheet called the Zagalski sheet before World War II. This was able to uh, speed breaking the original or the earlier Enigma ciphers. This required um, the upgrade to the Enigma that required the Bomba to break that. It required Turing and crew to, to do what they did. These people are, unless you're a crypto nerd um, or into history, these are, these are not people whose stories are known, but these people did um, amazing things beforehand. Uh, sticking with the World War II, um, Juliana Mikwitz, um, born Julianne Charlotte Ernestine von Mikwitz. Uh, that probably tells you there's an interesting story, right? Let's talk about her a little bit, because she's not well known. She was born in 1889 to Finnish and Russian parents, tutored at home in Russian, German, and English before she went to school. Um, she and the family escaped from the Bolsheviks in 1919, uh, went to Poland, uh, joined the U.S. military attache office, uh, escaped the Nazis in 1939, Eventually arrived in the U.S., uh, joined the Army Security Agency, the precursor to the NSA. Um, she is described on the NSA website as being an innovative linguist who is a prime advocate of new ways of exploiting language materials and developed highly valuable intelligence information at a time when the U.S. lacked other sources. So... Um, there's somebody that you uh, wouldn't have expected, but there's... 
it, it took a lot of people to do what uh, what happened. We come forward. This is one that um, uh, is a story that I wish more people knew. Um, being someone who hangs out in the hacker crowd, uh, as well as the more professional crowd, there's a lot of conversation about ethical hacking. There's a lot of conversation about uh, hacktivism and things like that. Uh, if you don't know his story, um, Rene Carmille was a um, punch card expert. He was a worked in the French Census Bureau before the um, before the war and. During the war, after uh, the Germans overran France and established the Vichy government, Rene Carmille um, cooperated with the Vichy government. At least that was the initial appearance. He knew more about punch card systems than almost anyone, uh, probably knew more about manipulating the systems than even the people in IBM. Uh, through manipulation of the census, uh, we can't know how many lives he saved. Uh, we know that he saved uh, a lot of Jewish lives, uh, undoubtedly saved uh, some Eastern European Slav Roma lives. Um, and he did it at uh, great personal risk. This one, I am sorry to tell you, doesn't have a happy ending. This one ends with his capture, imprisonment, and death at Dachau. So um, sometimes people break things for valid reasons. So he's, he's one of those heroes that I wish more people knew about. Uh, let's move forward. Elizabeth Friedman. So I have to say I'm conflicted about uh, Elizabeth. Um, she developed her uh, linguistic and uh, code-breaking skills during Prohibition. And as someone who likes to occasionally enjoy a fine glass of rum or uh, whiskey, this frustrates me. But she was doing what she was doing and enforcing the law. But the great thing was that a lot of that illegal liquor was coming in from the Caribbean, Central, and Latin America. When the war began, she was the best resource we had. She came from the Coast Guard. And she was transferred to the Navy, and she knew how people communicated. She knew the networks and the communication lines. She led to the U.S. being able to uh, intercept and compromise the contents of a, an enormous amount of uh, German correspondence that was coming through Latin America. Um, it was incredible due to her earlier work. Um, Friedman's team, she built a team which decoded at least 4,000 messages sent on over almost 50 radio circuits. So she uh, is another one who came from that. She and her husband went on to do a lot more uh, crypto nerd stuff, but she's one that we, we don't hear about too much. So let's talk about some better known people. Uh, Diffie Hellman, right? Everybody knows Wit and... Uh, Marty. Um, new directions in cryptography changed the way we communicate on the internet. The idea of exchanging um, keys securely in an insecure environment was a, was a stunning problem. Um, the Diffie-Hellman key exchange continues to secure our internet. Um, it was its son forever. And his motivation was, and uh, you know, he cares about individual rights and privacy. 
thus the interest in cryptography. Marty uh, is also interested in physical security. He continues to uh, talk about the dangers of nuclear war. He's been an, was an early advocate of the Beyond War movement and to this day runs the website nuclearrisk.org. Um, these are actual people with actual passions. They're not just names that you have to uh, memorize to take a test. Now, this is an interesting picture, though, because somebody's missing. Um, Ralph Merkel is a computer scientist, uh, one of the co-inventors of public key cryptography, uh, the inventor of cryptographic hashing. Um, he's uh, later got interested in molecular nanotechnology and cryonics. Um, he is a foundational figure that is often overlooked, um, but was a key part of that, as you can see from this, uh, this dashing trio here. Here's another one. You know these names. They're not in order here, but in case you need a hint, uh, they're in order here. And uh, these are folks, again, it's not just an acronym. It's not just a company. Uh, Ron Rivest invented several uh, symmetric key algorithms, uh, authored uh, MD hashes. Um, interestingly, long ago, he was concerned about the integrity of voting. Can you imagine that? Glad we solved that one, huh? Um, he created something called the three ballot voting system, which doesn't rely on cryptography because Ron Rivest says, I don't think we can trust crypto with voting. It's too important. Our democracy is too important. Um, it, it allows for anonymity, but also uh, verifying that your vote has been counted. Adi is one of the inventors of differential cryptanalysis. Um, Lynn, besides his theoretical computing science and crypto, has worked on uh, DNA computing using biologics instead of silicon. Uh, these are amazing people that uh, we're working on. They're not just an acronym. They're not just... But here's a, a question. Um, how about this guy? James Ellis. In 1970, so that would be before RSA and Diffie-Hellman, um, he was at GCHQ. He was at GCHQ for a very long time, for those I assume most know, but that's more or less the British version of NSA. Um, and he had some thoughts, and he put them down in a paper internally, and he called the paper, um, uh, it was written about non-secret encryption. It was this idea that you could um, have encryption in a non-encrypted space. You could trust things in public um, spaces. Crazy idea. A year later, um, two, three years later, a couple years later, uh, Clifford Cox uh, joined GCHQ, brilliant mathematician, fresh out of university. They weren't sure what to do with him. One of the first things they did was say, here's James Ellis's paper. What do you think of this? Well, he came up with some stuff. Uh, he discovered some things and uh, created a few things. Um, symmetric keys and some ways to do things securely. And uh, we now refer to everything, um, not everything. We now refer to a lot of what Clifford Cox discovered and created uh, after reading Ellis's paper as uh, RSA. 
He went on to uh, invent identity-based cryptography. He, uh, I believe, retired from GCHQ. He eventually held the title of chief mathematician at GCHQ, which meant he uh, probably could figure out the tip at the pub without a calculator. Um, a, a university mate of his was Malcolm Williamson. Uh, he joined just after Clifford Cox. Um, another brilliant mathematician. Uh, it's the same thing. What do we do with the new guy? Hey, give him, give him Ellis's paper. In 1974, he thought about the challenge of starting with an insecure environment and came up with a way to securely exchange cryptographic keys on an untrusted network. A couple of years later, um, Witt and Marty figured that out and it became and has ever since been known as the uh, Diffie-Hellman Key Exchange. Um, obligatory dog appearing in there. So uh, none of this was declassified until 1997. And I really like to tell this story for a couple of reasons. One, um, there are a lot of really smart people that predate us that have thought of a lot of stuff that we haven't thought of. And maybe we should think about it. But the flip side is what really matters is what we do with what we've done. This stuff stayed inside GCHQ and got very little practical use at all, ever. Um, what the better known names did was work out how to make it work and change the internet and the way we communicate forever. So a little bit of humility, but it, you know what, what you accomplish matters, a uh, little humility. Um, tidbit, James Ellis passed away before this was declassified, so it was a, one of those interesting stories of um, earlier construction, but it couldn't be shared. So let's let's now travel back in time. Um, this is not Francois or Louis Blanc, but it's a French semaphore tower. It's a recreation of the semaphore tower system that France used for government-only communications. These towers were all across France, back and forth, up and down, and they were used for government and military communication only. Uh, Francois and Louis figured a way to put messages on um, and get their messages across the country. And it uh, basically required bribing an operator to throw a message on and then back off. So there was a, a basically a typo key. You could send a signal and then say, disregard the last letter. Uh, but what they would do is one would place themselves at, say, a port city. The other one would be in Paris at the banks or exchanges, get a message about the state of shipping, about ships, about battles, whatever they were trying to get, and they would game the stock market. They would game the systems. Um, and so they were subverting networks uh, and because these are clear, these are open in the air, you didn't have to uh, necessarily compromise both ends. You just had to get the, the message on the wire and then maybe a pair of binoculars or telescope. You could see it yourself or you could bribe somebody at each end to subvert the network. Um, they were arrested. And this is for those of you who have followed or, or into the hacker history. They were arrested, they got in a little trouble, but then it turned out there were no actual laws against what they did. They did choose to leave France um, wisely. 
Pike. There were no laws against it, so they did not end their uh, lives in prison. So our uh, adversaries are, are, have been with us for a while. Um, another one often seen as the first modern hacker, although I would say the, the Blancs probably are, is, is this dashing gentleman, Neville Masklin. Um, he was a Victorian-era English stage magician, um, inventor of the pay toilet. Um, but he's here because of um, hacking uh, Marconi's allegedly secure wireless system. Uh, Neville Maskelyne was uh, didn't believe Marconi's claims of security and uh, set up something. Marconi was in a far-flung place and had his an assistant of his in a parlor in London with a group of investors and interested parties. And Marconi sent a wireless telegraph message across the wire. Um, Masculine figured out how to do a man in the middle attack and sent his message ahead of Marconi's. The associate had read most of an obscene limerick ridiculing Marconi uh, well before he realized what he was doing. For anyone who's done Morse code or other things, you sort of become a conduit and don't realize what you're saying. And uh, so unfortunately for Marconi's associate, he read an obscene limer limerick about his boss. Um, didn't go well. So wireless man in the middle attacks in 1903. So some of these challenges we've been working on for a while. Uh, here we go. You expected this one and you get homework. I'm not going to tell you anything about Grace Hopper, um, which is amazing. You got to know about it. Here's your homework. I'm going to give you one piece of homework. Um, you must have heard the stories. If not, she was famous for giving people a nanosecond. It was how she explained why it took so long for messages to get to satellites and back to ships at sea as an admiral. Ask around. Figure out who you know that has a nanosecond or had one, because they're pretty easy to lose, I've discovered. I never had one, but... Um, and ask how they got them and ask for their stories, because the people that have these are interesting people, and the stories of interacting with her are interesting. There's, If you want to see something, decades ago she was on The Letterman Show, and there's a great clip of her. The, the Internet has that. Um, so that's that. So let's skip forward. Here's one that I like to include in these talks because people know one thing about Robert Tappan Morris. People know that um, the Morris worm, he was at school, he created a worm, it blew up. Uh, and that's all a lot of people know about him. So let's tell you a little bit more. Uh, do you know that... Uh, Spaff did the forensic work on it. How did this do what it did when he was just playing around? You know, he had no malicious intent. That didn't keep it from doing fun things on the Internet, but he didn't have malicious intent. Uh, that proved that we needed some sort of uh, computer emergency response thing, like, say, a cert, which came out of this. Uh, first person convicted under the F Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. He was charged in 89, sentenced to three years probation in 90. Um, but to me, that's the boring part of the story. Uh, he then went on 
to co-found two companies, uh, ViaWeb, and the other one is Y Combinator. One of the companies he co-founded continues to be an incubator in the technology field all these years later. Um, the other thing that is not known about him by many people is that um, although he was not granted tenure track at Purdue, he had to settle for MIT. Uh, Robert Tappan Morris has been a ten tenured professor of electrical engineering and computer science at MIT since 2006. So if all you know about him was the worm, you should know that generations of people that couldn't get into Sirius uh, are doing pretty well with him as their professor at MIT. Of course, we can't talk about him without mentioning his dad. Um, brilliant man was it uh, was at um, Bell Labs for many many years worked on Multics and uh, later was involved in the development of that newfangled Unix stuff uh, he spent uh, about a decade at NSA and he was at NSA when um, his son got rolled up and the FBI went in to tell them that they were rolling his kid up at school uh, and um, the FBI normally comes in all FBI-like, but from folks that were there, I've heard that you don't go in FBI-like to Fort Meade. Uh, so that was one thing. He also, he, he's done some things. There are a variety of people. Um, one of the, he's one of the people that had this idea that we have phone lines. Wouldn't it be cool if we could send data on a phone line by maybe modulating and demodulating that? something that got later abbreviated to modem. Um, he had three rules of um, cryptanalysis, or he had a rule for cryptanalysis, three rules for computer security. Uh, one of the things, for anybody that's ever done a capture the flags, particularly with, with crypto challenges, um, one of his famous quotes is never, uh, I mean, uh, number rule and rule of cryptanalysis, check for plain text. Um, if you've ever tried one of those challenges and not looked to read, if you can read the thing, that's a real deal. Uh, check for plain text. Um, uh, one of his things from Bell and later at NSA, never underestimate the attention, risk, money, and time that an opponent will put into reading traffic. Um, he had three golden rules to ensure computer security. For those who are as old and jaded as I am, I'm, you might agree with these. Uh, one, do not own a computer. Two, should you fail there, don't turn it on. Three, if you failed the first two, please don't use it. Um, so he was uh, he was at, he was also famous for uh, chain smoking outside of his office and uh, burning up shrubberies at uh, at the joint. So let's uh, come a little forward. Did you know math and uh, security kind of weave together? Uh, Dorothy Denning, probably best known for a lattice model of secure information flow, which established a mathematical basis for enforcing information assurance, information security on a computer system. For those that are uh, into hacker history or part of that community, uh, she was known for being originally quite sympathetic uh, in her perspective on early hackers. Uh, later changed uh, her position on them. She worked on the skipjack block cipher and defense of the clipper chip. Um, I won't call her the nickname that she earned, but uh, some people have posed that. She was at 
Purdue for a while as a professor, then SRI, uh, then Georgetown, and eventually at the Naval Postgraduate School, um, as was her husband. Um, she was just a, a brilliant character in our field. So now we're going to talk about a futurist. I don't claim to be a futurist. It's a lot easier to look back at what other people um, have done, because that I can figure out. So there are people that we uh, live with today. If you said these things to them, they wouldn't believe you. The computer will touch men everywhere and in every way, almost on a minute to minute basis. Everyone will communicate through a computer, whatever he does. It will force and uh, force change, reshape life, modify career, accept the life of continuous change. Um, in 1966, Willis Ware warned us of this. Um, it was quite a prediction. He, uh, his career started out uh, working on classified radar systems during World War II, worked on um, IFF, Identify Friend Foe, radar electronic systems in World War II. He spent 40 years at RAND from 52 to 92. Um, he is the lead author of, uh, it's got a boring title, but he's the lead author of what most of us know as the Ware Report. Initially issued in 1967. I think the final iteration was 71. Um, obviously it's completely obsolete except that if you read that paper, you change a few words, you change some labels on a picture or two and abstract it back to a higher level, it's um, still highly valuable and very prescient. Um, one of the important things that Willis Ware understood, understanding all of these things, was he was concerned about the reliance on computers and that that would pose um, serious privacy issues. Um, he led a bunch of committees aimed at safeguarding computer user privacy rights, um, led the commission that was set up by President Ford, led to the first uh, Privacy Act back in 1974. Um, I wish we had voices like his that people listen to instead of the government doing what they do, but that's enough of me being political. Uh, just amazing. If you, I, I assume most have, but if you have not read the Ware Report, um, grab it. It's easy to find on the internet read through it, abstract yourself back just a little bit and think, wow, uh, that's some fundamental stuff. Speaking of fundamental things, um, Bob Abbott um, did a whole bunch of stuff. Bob led the first um, red team um, at NSA. He created and led the first team at NSA to look at internal security by poking at it. Um, by today's standards, it wasn't as aggressive a red team as what we've got now, but it was it was where that started. It was poking at things at NSA to secure our stuff before others violated it. Um, he led a project called uh, the Research into Secure Operating Systems. Uh, the study ran early to mid-70s. Um, Guy, the goal was to aid in understanding security issues and operating systems and try to figure out what it would take to enhance them. This report hasn't aged as well unless you're into the history of it. However, 
there are some um, there are some good tidbits to be learned if you're really into this stuff. Uh, one of the interesting things that came out of the Rysos report was they determined seven key things that were real problems in operating system security. And the first two are incomplete and inconsistent parameter validation. Um, implicit sharing of privileges and confidential data. Um, asynchronous validation and inadequate serialization. So yeah, uh, race conditions and time of use, time, you know, time of checkout versus time of use. Uh, we were worried about these. He was telling us to worry about them in the early 70s. Uh, one that we still maybe have some ground to cover before we solve, inadequate identification, authentication, authorization, um, exploitable logic errors, violable prohibitions and limits. And yes, it's a lot easier to define a problem than it is to fix it, but the first step is defining them. And it's easy to read, to see these and get disgusted, but honestly, we've, uh, the industry has made progress in the OS level. Operating systems are imperfect, but they have gotten better. Unfortunately, the commoditization of hardware and software and commoditization of software creation has allowed us to push all of these and many more up into the application layer. And that's what, that's the challenge that most of us face now. Um, he was the author of the first set of data and privacy confidentiality policies for healthcare. Uh, developed the first multi-user, multitasking OS for Cray class supercomputers that ran uh, 24 by seven. Uh, he led a project that produced the first uh, monitoring systems for open heart surgery uh, patients. And uh, one of my favorites is, I mentioned that team at uh, NSA, the red team. Um, the movie Sneakers was, uh, he was an advisor to the movie. The core team in that was based on Bob's team at NSA. Um, the James Earl Jones character was named Bernard Abbott as a nod to Bob. And so uh, Bob uh, was that. Also arguable, he was arguably the first person to leave those sort of big Rand Bell Labs government jobs and do uh, information assurance, information security, what we now call cybersecurity, as a consultant, um, arguably the founder of the industry that many of us uh, live and breathe in. Um, another one, Fernando Corby Corbato. We, uh, we recently uh, lost him, but he's interesting because he's the guy that came up with the idea of using a password for security. Um, uh, and more interesting was he knew that we had outgrown the use of passwords. Um, <clears throat> he, he um, that's an important thing. Sometimes we're protective of our babies. Uh, if you have a great idea, and technology marches past, time marches past, eh, let it go. Um, and uh, he thought it was better than post-its, although um, there weren't post-its back then. Um, from uh, MIT's, uh, it is tributed to MIT's CCL site, it's no overstatement to say Corby's work on time-sharing fundamentally transformed computers as we know them today. From PCs to smartphones, the digital revolution can directly trace its roots back to the work he led at that other school, uh, MIT, 60 years ago. Um, 
another one that's not as well known and it's it's not just to throw stones at kevin even though we've um tatsumo uh shimomura best known for helping take down kevin mitnick studied under feynman at caltech worked at los alamos then ucsd then nsa and son testified before congress on cell phone privacy issues in 1992 um, the mitnick tracking and takedown in 95 he's founded companies uh, labs um, his father got a you know tangent but his father uh, earned a nobel in uh, chemistry in 2008 so uh, an interesting family to um, say the least um, Loving the commentary here. So a sentimental favorite. Um, not enough people know her. Those that do, um, I apologize. Hopefully you have a handkerchief or Kleenex or handy. Uh, Becky Bass, um, Info Mom. Um, I gave a talk about her. And Kelly, you're out there somewhere. And referred to her as the nickname that she got decades ago, Den Mother of Intrusion Detection. She ratted me out to Becky. Becky uh, made it very clear that I was no longer allowed to call her the Den Mother of Intrusion Detection. She wished to be called the Cranky Broad. And I continue to honor that to this day, even though we lost her uh, a couple of years ago. Um, if you think about the names that we know in early network analysis, intrusion detection, um, my friend and former employer, Ron Gula, Marty Resch, Marcus, the, the number of people that she took under her wing when she was at NSA uh, and helped advance the people she connected and found ways to advance the um, network analysis was, was just incredible. Um, and then after NSA, she went into consulting and did some amazing things. Um, she grew up in South Alabama um, as she told it, uh, when she went north to marry a Yankee, her dad made her promise that when she was done with all that nonsense, she'd come home. And she did. Uh, she ended her career teaching at the University of South Alabama, fulfilling a promise that she made to her father uh, when she left Alabama when she was much younger. So um, also, you know, yep, voice is cracking. Amazing hugs. So let's move on before I get really weepy. Uh, she was just incredible, and the number of lives she touched is incredible. So um, we're closing in on a point where it's time for questions. But this project came about because I wanted to uh, share some things. And I started thinking about what to share. And I thought about this, and I dug into that quote, if I've seen further, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. And Newton, who um, changed the way we view our world, uh, said that. And he actually was paraphrasing one of his mentors. This was uh, not even an original statement, which I think is really impressive that he took that. Um, for a while, this was actually on the rim of the British pound coin, as I believe. Um, the important thing about this, though, is that it um, it's Shoulders of InfoSec. And the project, shoulders of InfoSec.org, it goes to an ugly wiki 
yes, it's horrible. No, there's no padlock. The like software Stockholm syndrome. I need to move it. But anyway, there are a lot of names there. Um, but the project is called the Shoulders of Infosec, not the Giants of Infosec. Uh, Newton talked about standing on the shoulders of giants, but um, giants is kind of a challenge. Uh, we can't all be giants, but we can all, in ways large and small, offer a shoulder for others to stand on. And um, if you'll forgive a little bit of idealism, I believe that by providing shoulders for others to stand on, that's the way we become giants. And so with that, um, uh, before we throw it wide open and I have to find things, a lot of people contributed to this project. I mentioned many of them. Becky, um, Marcus Ranham, Ron Gula, Gunnar Peterson, Spaff has been instrumental in, in uh, pointing me at resources and being a sounding board for many things. And, you know, with that, if you want to find me, info at shouldersofinfosec.org. Uh, if you want to talk about that, uh, I do a podcast. Everybody does a podcast. Don't pay any attention. We don't have sponsors, though, at least. Uh, I'm on Twitter if your life is too shallow. Uh, you can ping me at work anytime. I'm easy to find on that internet thing. Um, and with that, I, I realized years ago, people say things like the end on presentations, but that's dumb. Uh, my presentation is winding down, but um, hopefully this has inspired you. If you know of people or stories that should be part of this project, let me know. Um, reach out. Join the wiki if you want to add some people yourself. It's pretty simple. Um, learn, share, find out who you know uh, that's got a uh, nanosecond. Find out the story. They may have just met her briefly at a conference. They may have uh, had good conversations. Um, but then, you know, this is a beginning. Every end is a beginning. And with that, I will... Uh, I will, I will find glasses and try to read and see if there are uh, comments or questions I should answer. Uh, yes, uh, we, we do all love uh, and miss uh, Becky. Um, and like I said, one thing I would really like to um, do is get more personal stories. So if anybody wants to share stories in any way about any of the people that we've got, um, on there, anybody that's missing. I'm teetering on the brink of trying to put um, the next generation uh, in here in the wiki. I'm struggling with the hacker crowd because it's probably better for uh, people like uh, Jeff Moss and people that are part of that culture to do that. Um, I, maybe someday when I no longer need to be employable or have friends, I, I will write a book called How Hackers Ruined InfoSec and How InfoSec Ruined Hackers. But that's a, a later project, so I'm not sure about the, how much hacker culture. But there is a de decided um, inter, um, there's a decided interplay, and um, a lot of us straddle that line between um, DEF CON and uh, and Black Hat and RSA. And so, uh, you know, it's good when we break down barriers, as I mentioned earlier. There are a lot of silos in our world, and any of those that we can knock out, um, there's, um, we're all better off for it. And yes, there's a, a mention 
The Babbage Institute has some great resources. I link to those at the top of the Shoulders Wiki. There are links to a variety of resources, the Multitions, Babbage. Um, there's some great papers at UC Davis, as I believe, variety links. Anything that can be done. Uh, it is a big, ugly wiki, and I'm sure the link rod is ugly because it's been a couple of years since I've crawled it. But there's that. Um, yeah. So I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to share this with you. Dig through here. I'll uh, volunteer, Jack. Uh, I, I met Admiral Hopper, but it was at a time when she was giving out picoseconds. Ah. Uh, rather than nanoseconds. Uh, so it had gotten along to that point. And uh, unfortunately, at some point in a move, they disappeared. I, I have heard that. I asked on Twitter who had one to make sure I wasn't asking an impossible question. And uh, I, I got the, uh, you know, a small piece of wire is really easy to lose. Yeah. Um, well, the picoseconds were little packets of pepper she had gotten oh, right. from the Navy. And um, so they, they were had U.S. Navy on them, little packets of pepper. And she said each was was a picosecond. And um, they disappeared. And I, I often wonder if a roommate somewhere along the line decided that that was a condiment to use. Yeah, that, that went on their uh, burger or something, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would encourage the people who are listening, who are interested in cybersecurity to check out some of these resources that we do have a rich history as a field. And as, as Jack said, we're often too busy trying to keep up to really gain some of the perspective. But when you look at some of the other sciences like chemistry or physics or mathematics, there are a lot of interesting people we can point to. Um, we need to do a better job of understanding that in in cybersecurity. So any questions for Jack? Good, I've lulled them all to sleep, so. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I think they're stunned or they're all checking out the wiki. So there's a question, what are you up to these days, Jack? So I, um... <clears throat> I am at Tenable. I've been at Tenable almost a decade. Um, Ron brought me in. I have a phenomenal job. Uh, Tenable is not a little engineering startup uh, full of people that are out in the community, but we know where we came from, and I am the community advocate for Tenable, not the corporate community, but the greater community. And so um, working on the shoulders of InfoSec Project, supporting security B-sides globally and some specific events, doing some uh, work with stress and burnout and coping skills uh, in our world, which past year has added to all of us. Um, a little bit of stuff on career studies and what makes jobs great and whatnot. Uh, and uh, just being out, um, I always tell people what I do at Tenable is um, I'm a little too candid for a publicly traded company to be an official spokesman. So I don't really speak for the company, but one of the things I always do is listen for the company. And uh, our CEO, Amit Yaran, is a, uh, understands the value of connecting with community. And so he and a few others there want me to do things like uh, talk to people, listen to people, uh, share what, uh, what I've discovered and 
put in some sweat equity in making conferences happen and building community. Jack, there's a question in the Q&A, which I can read to you or you can read it. Um, no, this is not OBS. I was going to try Open Broadcast Studio, but it gets really temperamental feeding OBS to Zoom. Um, this is actually a beta feature of Zoom. Uh, if you go into screen sharing advanced, you can grab a, a PowerPoint deck and use that as your virtual background. And so that's what I've done here. There is a green screen behind me. Uh, there are banks of LEDs and other things because we all live here. But that's, uh, that's one of the beta features of Zoom um, is uh, there. They've made it easier. OBS does cool stuff, but sometimes when you pipe it to something that it doesn't have a native integration with, it... Uh, it degrades the video quality pretty heavily. And I think that's on Zoom's end. They just don't know what to do with the virtual camera. But anyway, this is yeah. Zoom. It, uh, if you are on Zoom all the time, uh, they've made some advancements. The They hide them. Uh, but things like uh, original audio, which is what I'm using because I'm running through a solid mic and mixer and things like that, uh, they've made it better. Um, so, But you have to play first to get anything to work. Because technology... All right. Well, I don't see any other questions popping up. Um, again, I would encourage people to check out some of these resources. For some of you, uh, I had I typed in the link there of the Babbage Institute. Um, they, they had a grant from NSF and they visited and interviewed a lot of these people about their backgrounds. Uh, the one with Willis Ware was captured just about a year before he passed away. And there's also one of Becky. Um, so there are a number of individuals who were interviewed there that you may never get a chance or will never get a chance to meet that you can hear some very interesting stories from them along the way. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of history there that's worth, worth following up on. So Jack, thank you so much. Oops, Thank wait a second. You. Yep, there we go. Thank you for an enjoyable hour, Jack. All right. Um, I, I, uh, if any of you are at a conference, at a con, at a meeting, and you see Jack, uh, he may have a top hat on. See, sometimes wears a top hat, uh, which extends him to about seven feet tall. But uh, I'm sure he would be happy to uh, to say hello if you were to if you were to meet him. Uh, one question popped up. Why don't you answer that and then we'll conclude. So, Jack, in the Q&A. Uh, will system vulnerabilities live with us, uh, or do you think they're going to end? I think um, I think we have some opportunities to improve things as, whether we like it or not, moving to cloud means that we have to work closer with developers so that we can work earlier in the pipeline to secure software better. But we're never going to make vulnerabilities disappear. Um, and I don't say that because I work at a vulnerability management vendor. Um, th the built-in vulnerabilities are one class of vulnerabilities. Uh, the making systems vulnerable by misconfiguration 
um, is, is another class. And it's really hard to make systems uh, so that you can't uh, that you can so that you can actually use them the way you want, but can't screw them up and make them insecure. Um, I think it was Douglas Adams that said, uh, "Anytime anyone who tries to make something idiot-proof uh, is underestimating the quality of idiots these days," or something like that. Um, and I don't like to call people idiots, but you know, the people are trying to do their jobs, and if we don't make it really easy to do it the right way securely, it won't be done securely. Thank you again, Jack, and right. thank you, thank everyone, you. for being here. We'll all see right. you next week. All right. Enjoy thank your you afternoon. All.